Topping Talks. One hundred and five hours a week can't be beat. Welcome to Topping Talks. Topping Talks is a Topping Tribune production, and today's episode is proudly sponsored by Topping Technologies and ExpressVPN. Topping Technologies is an IT value-added reseller and services company with a special proficiency in security. Heck, I see their founder at least twice a day. I have to say he's quite handsome and brilliant. If you're a business in Texas that could use a hand, reach us at sales at toppingtechnologies.com. Also, are you part of the 3.6% of Americans who still care about privacy? If you are, then perfect. ExpressVPN can assist. Even though 96% of stats are made up on the spot, ExpressVPN does give 100% satisfaction guarantee with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Now, without further ado, I'm proud to say I'm interviewing today my old friend, Don Rowley, current CIO at ATX Networks. Good afternoon, Nick. How are you? Perfect. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Don. I appreciate it. Good. You're welcome. I'm, I'm enjoying being here. You didn't tell me I was going to be your first podcast interviewee. Well, no pressure. So I'm a, I'm a little intimidated, but a little honored at the same time. Absolutely. So, well, thanks. you were one of my first clients when I started Topping, topping Technologies, too. There you go. It's been a, <laughs> been a good journey there so far. Oh, it's been a lifetime. How do you, So I know it goes back a couple of years, but how do you first get into IT? Wow, IT. Uh, I, I told you a little while ago, that's an interesting question, because I, when I was in high school, I actually wanted to be a marine biologist. In fact, if you go look at my yearbook, there's people are saying, hey, it'll be cool to hear stories of you living under the ocean and, and all this kind of stuff. I also, <laughs> also had time where I wanted to be a doctor. Um, so I spent all my time in high school actually studying biology and you know things around sciences in order to kind of go that direction. Uh, in 11th grade, I got um, derailed by Apple computers. Uh, wait, the, wait, which model? Uh, the Apple II. Right. Apple II. That's popular. And uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, it was in the, I guess, the math lab. They called it computer math at the time, but it was really learning like basic programming and solving basic equations and doing some graphing and things like that on the, the Apple II. But I, I don't know, that got me introduced to computers and I kind of thought, well, maybe I, maybe I like computers too. Um, the same year, I also, talk, I also took a, um, they called it economics, but it was really basics of investing. So I took an investing class where we, they gave us like fake money to play with, to, to follow stocks in the newspaper. I'll date myself because it was like literally actually in the newspaper. Oh, really? And um, we had to chart our performance and I actually came out pretty well at the end of the year. I would have made several thousand dollars. This is back in 1981. Oh, nice. Um, on stocks. And so I thought, well, maybe I, I want to do investing. Yeah. And um, uh, when I graduated, uh, I had this strange situation where I had an uncle who was having cataract surgery. And at the time, it, you go into the hospital, it was like a week, uh, in the, you know, four, five days in the hospital. And then recovery, and somebody had to watch over you. You, you know, you think about this, right, today. I mean, you, you got cataract surgery day, which is, like, done in a couple hours, and it's day surgery, and, you know, nobody even thinks about it. But back then, it was, it was, uh, it was a big to-do. So I went up to go look after him um, for a semester, really, when we found out he had lung cancer. Um, but during that time, during that, I ended up staying a year with him. During that time, I, I kind of broke up my, my year into two- or three-month segments, and I, I just started going deep on – uh, computers like I, I had a Sinclair computer at the time. On a way, and I literally tried to build my own hard disk interface because it had tape at the time. And I thought, well, yeah. how hard could this be? This is just some programming, and it was wildly more complicated than I, I thought. But I actually tried to 
build my own interface off of a Sinclair to a, 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 a hard drive. So that was interesting. Um, I spent some time doing some more, you know, looking at stocks. I spent some more time looking at biology. I spent some more time thinking about what I wanted to do in the medical field, which to me would have been trauma medicine. Um, anyway, I, just, I, I used, you know, each of those kind of two months at a time to think about all that stuff and finally decided I was going to not look back and I was going to go into the IT field. I was going to get a degree in computer science. I was going to take a minor, or say, take that back, uh, take a minor, no, minor in photography, but I was going to do a double major in finance. And my rationale was, if I'm going to be doing things that are computer related, chances are I probably under, ought to understand what the business side is doing so yeah. that whatever decision those manager-like people and owners of companies make, at least I'd understand the context of it in my little technical world. Mm-hmm. And um, that that started my path in, in IT. So I spent a lot of time doing programming work in college. Um, my first IT job was I was a state employee where I ran the computer network for the university and the computer mainframe at uh, Stephen F. Austin State University working the midnight to seven shift. Oh my God. So I would come in at midnight and um, I would make sure all the batch jobs that ran the university's uh, system got kicked off properly and then I'd do my homework while I was waiting for all those jobs to finish. And then they had to, they um, saved themselves to disc. And these discs were like washing machine size disc arrays. And you had to make sure that those were all fine. But then all these printouts would spread out or spit out on these big giant line printers, um, which were the size, honestly, of like a small refrigerator. Oh, my God. And it was my job to take all those printouts and split them all up and put them in the right person's box so the next morning when they came in, all their, their printouts were there. So I kind of babysat the mainframe at night. Um, since I was there all night, um, we decided to keep the computer lab open. So we would let uh, students come in all night and work on their programs and work on their, you know, their terminals and things like that. And uh, I kind of ran that lab, too, since I volunteered to <laughs> I was up there all night. Um, but I did that for two and a half years. And uh, when I left that, um, I was hired by a company called Arthur Young at the time, one of the big eight accounting firms in Dallas. And they, they hired me. Um, I was the third person that they'd hired for this role, which they called a, an, an internal IT support network person. Um, and they told me in the interview, it's like, you should know we've – we're not paying much for this job. I think at the time it was like $35,000 or something. And um, they told me, hey, we're not paying much for this job because we fired the last three people who have had this job because nobody's been able to, to, to do what? what we needed done. And I was like, okay, I, I tell you what, everything you've described to me, I can do. And if I'm still here in six months and you haven't fired me, then you're going to bring my salary up to market. I stayed there three and a half years. That's awesome. So, <laughs> so and, and re- literally my first job was um, the audit department. It, Arthur Young at the time was all Mac based. You remember those Mac pluses, big, you know, Mac cube that you carried around? Oh, the colored ones. Uh, not the colored ones. The, that? the ones that were the taupe colored, Mac, like literally a Mac plus. They were a, a kind of big cube looking box and oh, okay. the, kind of the color of your walls actually uh, for the case. And then just a little, you know, nine inch screen or something in the thing. I, I seen those. And um, the tax department was all PC based and... They were trying to get the, the audit department. They, they had two main goals. One, they wanted to get the audit department on a network, hmm. which had never been done in Arthur Young before in, really? uh, in most offices around the country. Um, so I came in and built the first network on a thing called Apple Talk. And the PC 
world was on, you know, the tax department was on PC. Well, another guy got that all networked together on, I don't remember, probably Token Ring or something like that at the time. Mm -hmm. But then they wanted the two to talk together. So this guy, I believe his name, his name was Buff Buffington. <laughs> really? <laughs> Seriously, I don't know what his first name was. Everybody called, him Buff, everybody called him Buff, and that's who he went by. But he and I figured out how to get the audit department and the tax department on the same network. Um, and whatever we did, they liked enough because they sent it up to the mothership in uh, Cleveland or whatever where Arthur Young was based and got that uh, office wired up and, and whatever based on the template that we came up with. And, you know, anyway, I just did general support and then I started working for the partners and doing, doing things for various uh, clients that were IT related. Nothing of my background. All my background was software development, but this, this turned into all network, uh, network work. Uh, but that was, my, that was kind of my first launch into, into IT. That's awesome. Did, did they also have a mainframe? I'm sure they probably did back in uh, back at, in Cleveland, but nothing nothing in Dallas that I'm I'm aware of. What, what did the university have when you were working on that mainframe? It was a CP Honeywell CP6 Honeywell Bull CP6 mainframe, and it was an unusual mainframe because it was not based on IBM technology at the time, which was the dominant standard. Yeah, it was actually based on Berkeley uh, USD Unix. So really, it was actually a, a Unix based mainframe. So, oh my gosh! I and and I I think. You know this thing. This thing took up, you know, a, the corner of a of a several thousand square foot room, and I think there's probably more computing power in in Apple Watch or something <laughs> today <laughs> than there was in that whole that whole cabinet. I mean, you could open up the doors on this thing and almost walk into it for the, you know, to see the memory and the processor cores and things I, like that that were on it. But I, I don't know. I don't know why, but I'm always ever since I got into IT, I've always been fascinated by just the pinnacle of what used to be technology, which was the yeah, mainframe. Like yeah. every business had to have one of those giant computing monstrosities. Yeah. And, I, and a lot of people don't know IBM still makes them. Just, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know. yeah, they still have their, they saw their place and their purpose or whatever. But um, anyway, for me at the time, it was, it was a, a foray to get into the, the IT world. And, you know, my, my, my career progressed pretty oddly after that. Um, I, I had to learn some, I knew I had some Unix background, obviously, because of the, the mainframe work. And then one of the partners had some work that needed to be done for one of their clients and they were all Unix based. So I learned more Unix to get something done. And then some people at Nortel heard that I had Mac skills and Unix skills and Nortel was all Mac and Unix based. So I got hired to do the campus consolidation in Dallas at the time in the, the late eighties, early nineties. So really early nineties when Nortel was growing like crazy and they were consolidating mul multiple campuses onto the big um, building that's now on 75 and Richardson. I was one of the first 40 people to move into that building, but we did all the networking, you know, work and all the prep for bringing literally, God. you know, 9,000 people into that campus. And I stayed there through that project. And then I went to work for a, finally got to do what I was, um, my background was for, which was software development. I went to work for a small startup. So I'd go from a company that had literally like 80,000 people in it to a company that had 13 people in it, um, in the healthcare wow. space. So completely different, um, so where I, I helped build an application, um, what, on what, uh, what inspired you to take that leap? Because that's a whole that's a whole different environment. Going from you know eighty thousand to I don't know this 20. this is mid nineties and software development was going you know early nineties ninety one ninety two so you know software development's going crazy and it's really yeah. where I wanted to be. That was my what my degree was in. So I really wanted to be doing software development. So I was trying to get back into that and um, I ended up being the only programmer for two years. But we built an application that did physician credentialing for healthcare plans, uh, both as a service, but then we we built the database and started selling the the access to the data. And keep in mind what I'm talking about here, right? This is 92, 93 timeframe. Mm -hmm. 
Um, we kept growing. We hired two more people, and basically three of us built this application that ended up being used by 200-something healthcare companies across the United States. Um, the owner sold out in 97, 97 to a group of people. Uh, at the time, we were doing a lot of uh, data work. Like, we were taking data from 350 different sources, putting it all together, making it available um, for the plans that were doing the the, health, the the physician credentialing. Or, mm. you know, we were starting to put it on the web. Oh, wow. And uh, a small company at the time called WebMD came knocking, and they ended up absorbing most of our data because uh, we were trying to build a, a, the guy, Mike, and I, who were, did most of the work, we were trying to get the company to build a search engine yeah. around our healthcare data and license it, but the owners of the company at the time just started selling the data. And once they'd sold it all to WebMD, WebMD went crazy, and uh, this company was bankrupt two years later. Oh, wow. So I obviously I left there. and Because I know WebMD is still around. You oh, yeah, see yeah, them all the time yeah, if you're yeah, referencing, yeah, yeah. looking up yeah. symptoms and stuff. They're yeah. one of the top, they always yeah. are one of the top results. Somehow they were real interested. Cause we had built this database that was literally every doctor, MD, DO, nurse, anesthetist, you know, lots of different things all, all together in one, one place. Fabulous team of people great company um but the the new owners they just didn't they didn't they just didn't quite get the where the internet was going at the time and you know to me made some bad decisions that resulted in that company unfortunately it, it was very frustrating because i was watching you know seven years of work really get thrown away in the space of about eight or nine months so it was, uh, it was pretty cha pretty challenging um i went to work then for a company called uh, uh at the time it was um uh CSX lines, but it's what was left of um, a large container shipping company that was uh, called Sealand that was uh, sold to a company called Maersk. Uh, Maersk couldn't take the domestic business because of some laws on the antitrust. I'm guessing because they're not, huge. No, it's not. It's not antitrust. It's really? um, in most most countries you have a the equivalent of what we have in the U.S. called a, the Jones Act, which oh. protects um, supply lines, especially in times of war. So like you, you can't have you can't have an airline or coastwise shipping that's owned by a foreign entity because in right. times of strife or times of war, the government wants to be able to rely on those supply lines uh, to co-opt them if need be for military needs. And yep. if you've got foreign entanglements, it's a problem. And uh, almost every country have these. So when um, when Maersk bought the portion of Sealand, they can only buy the international book of business, and they were left with the the domestic business. So overnight, they went from being you know Sealand went from being a, a or, you know, a multi-billion dollar company to a, about a $600 million company. Oh, wow. Um, uh, and, you know, it, it, I was on a team of three people that was tasked with basically taking that IT infrastructure and shrinking it to the size it needed to be and transforming it. And at the time, um, they had the... Um, Container movement system was on legacy IBM mainframe technology. Oh, wow. The back office business was on uh, a tool called Power Builder, which integrated with um, SQL database. And because they had never quite finished the transition off the IBM stuff, um, was an integration between the two. And then somewhere in there, the web started being developed. So they had stopped the Power Builder development except for maintenance and were moving everything to um, web-based and .NET and SQL. But they'd only gotten so far on that and built an integration between the other two. So it was this big integration. And we had to choose one of those technologies and move forward. So we chose the web technology. And um, uh, basically, you know, ultimately over about three years, shut down the mainframe, shut down all the power builder stuff, migrated everything to the, the web-based assets. And, uh, 
you know, I, I was leading a team of uh, web architects and database uh, people as a result of my experience with the startup. Uh, somewhere in there, I, I got asked if I could handle infrastructure, so I took over infrastructure. Somewhere in there, I got asked if I could handle the data, the database people that were running the ERP system, so I took over that and uh, worked real closely with another guy who um, was running the ERP system, but then I learned a lot about ERPs during that time. Um, and you had another question for me here. You know, it's like, what, what was a pivotal career moment um, in, you know, that led to me being a CIO? I think a lot of it, honestly, was at that time when I was at um, Horizon Lines. It was what the company ultimately ended up being named after Sealand, CSX Lines, and then uh, went through a couple of private equity things, but known as Horizon Lines. Um, I, I'd say that period was really critical to me because it allowed me to have my first management role. Um, second, it allowed me to adopt the uh, infrastructure at scale. It allowed me to adopt the ERP side of the world, at least part of it, at scale. Um, but then I had a boss there, a guy named, guy named Jeff at the time, who I really owe my current role to because um, Jeff was a great CIO. Um, uh, there's actually two people there that, that were really pivotal to me, and I'll, I'll tell a couple of stories. But Jeff, Jeff was a CIO at the time I, I left, and um, he, he I, I was a senior manager at the time. And you know what? He may have actually still been director of IT. I think he was still director of IT. Rick, Rick was still the, the CIO at the time, uh, or Trisha. Trisha may have taken over. I, I'm not sure which one, but... The, the guy who, I'll back up a little bit. The guy who hired me at, um, at Horizon Lines was a guy named Rick Kessler when he was putting this team together. Mm -hmm. So I kind of have Rick to thank. Um, he did some really cool things really early on when we were shrinking the team and we were um, trying to get rid of some contractors that we just didn't know what they were doing. Um, I remember we had this one contractor who was very controversial. He was building the company a lot. Nobody knew what he did. <laughs> I, I dug in to find out what he was doing and find out he was you know running things on the, the company that may have been personal and he was doing radio shows and TV shows and you know, <laughs> billing a lot of dollars. And yeah. I was like, look, you find out we really didn't need him. But yeah. he had everybody believing that, you know, you needed this guy's services. Or otherwise, everything was going to fall apart. And I was like, I, we really don't need him at all. So yeah. I went and told him, and I was tasked with eliminating about a million dollars of budget. Well, his was seriously like a third of that. So oh um, my gosh. I remember the day I told him, he got up, he looked at me, and he said, this is wrong. You guys are going to die. And he literally got up from the table, walked straight into the, C the CIO's office, Rick, and said, this guy's letting me go. You need to tell him he's full of shit. And Rick looked right at that guy and said, whatever Don says goes. And in that instant, he legitimized my authority and what I needed to do at that company. And word got around about that oh, yeah. in terms of the analysis of what we needed to do and you know where we needed to go. And I went out, you know, I stayed at that company for 10 years. Well, toward the tail end of it, we'd been through multiple evolutions of, you know, the company, one private equity firm, another private equity firm. We'd gotten to things that were running super, super stable. I was a senior manager at the company at the time, um, but I really wanted to move on to director role. But the guy ahead of me, Jeff, who was the director of IT at the time, um, you know, he was really good at what he did and he wasn't going anywhere. Um, you know, so I, I really credit him was sitting down one day, one day and saying, Don, look, you've got all the skills you need to go, but it's probably not going to happen here. And even though I was still there, he started working with me and the, the CIO, Trisha, by that time, to start honing my skills, knowing that I was going to leave the organization at some point. And as much as they didn't want me to go, I had kind of grown as far as I could go at that point in time. And uh, when the opportunity to, to leave came up, um, it, it came pretty quickly. I, I had a, a guy who I'd done some volunteer work with outside of um, outside of uh, Horizon, 
uh, at a place called SciTech Discovery Center. And at the time, he was the CIO of a company called GenBand. Oh, yeah. And when GenBand bought a portion of Nortel, so fast forward, I started, you know, I did some work at Nortel in the early 90s. Yeah. <laughs> By 2010, Nortel was bankrupt and being dismantled. And GenBand bought a portion of it. And that company was going to go from 400 people overnight to, I don't know, like 2,100 people or something. And Rick hired me to basically be the, um, the director of IT and to manage part of that transition. And um, when I went there, that was, that was really great. Uh, I, 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 anyway, th that, that event right there was probably, you know, Jeff working with me at Horizon Lines to say, look, you've gone about as far as you can go here but the recognition and the trust that he had as a mentor to me mm. that I really just needed to go someplace else was really pivotal because pivotal because it, it set the stage for me being able to go to GenBand. GenBand was the launch pad to, after I'd been there for five years, uh, a C CEO I'd worked with before calling me up and saying, hey, look, I need a CIO to a, a company we're, we're acquiring. And, you know, based on what I'd done at GenBand, uh, he hired me and that was my, you know, that was my first role as a CIO was when I went to Imagine Communications. So that's awesome. So but, that, but none of that would have happened without the the really candid but truthful conversations that Jeff and I had when I was at Horizon Lines that, you know, I, I if I was just gonna have to make a change in order to 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 get to the next level because it, it wasn't gonna happen there as much as I wanted it to. So I really credit Jeff with with you know, that recognition and that mentorship at the time. Uh, and it's, it's funny, I'm still friends with Jeff today. I don't, I don't talk to him a whole lot, but fast forward a few years, his daughter's in um, gymnastics and my son who is also in gymnastics is, uh, is her coach. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, so, so I, I see Jeff from time to time and uh, at various gymnastics events, not, not real often, but yeah. anyway, he, he and I still, I know, still talk from time to time. So yeah, it's really kind of a weird, weird, weird way things work out. Uh, in that respect, but uh, those those anyway. are the rarest, yeah. most valuable people yeah. when you're at a company, and they actually want to train you to go beyond where your current yeah. position is, even though they know you yeah. will probably leave that company. I think yeah. was I know there's this famous quote Richard Branson once said is you know train everyone like they're gonna train them so that they're good enough to leave, but yeah. treat them good enough so that they don't, they want, don't want to. to. Yeah, yeah. But very few companies actually, especially kind of cliche, yeah. especially when the companies grow, sometimes they lose some of that entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing how those types of people invest in you. Yeah, it, it was interesting. Like I said, I, I was very fortunate. There was a really good distillation of good people there, right? I mean, when you look at Rick giving me the opportunity to have my first management role, you know, I, I certainly appreciate that. The triad of leadership that we had with Jeff and Trisha at the time, and then, um, you know, they had been at, they'd been at that company for a while, so they had a natural progression plan. And I was actually coming in from the outside, yeah. which was not unusual, but it was it was I was. I was an outsider on that that team, but you know, like I said, I was there for ten years. So you know, yeah. we formed a really great partnership over time. Uh, you know, Trisha grew into the CIO role at some point. Jeff grew into the, you know, the director of IT role at some point. And you know, there was just no clear progression for me, uh, other than to go. And they were both part of you know, thoughtfully recognizing you know that when the opportunity came, that they'd probably lose me. And yeah. uh, but it was good. I mean, it, it was not a. It was not. It, it was. It was the right way to do a transition in my mind, right? Yeah. To to progress to another level. So I've I've always appreciated their leadership during that that time, uh, and then obviously when you know Brad's leadership. I have a funny story about Brad. the the first The first day on the the job, he, he came into my office, and I'd known Brad for about a year, year and a half, and he had worked in this volunteer organization, so we knew each other's style and had a real good trust level already. But my first day on the job, um, he came in. It's like Don, I'm really really busy. I'm not sleeping much right now. You've got, 
nine and a half million dollars to get this infrastructure transition done. Don't f it up. <laughs> and that was in, that literally was entire his entire handoff to me. Yeah. And, and from there we we took it. So we had this really high trust level, which is really good. Um, you know, and I, I appreciated him showing that that trust level because uh, it allowed us to get a lot of things done in a really short period of time and make some really good decisions. And rarely as an IT person, do you have a chance to build something, you know, from nothing to, to something. Yeah. IT was three people at the time. When I left, it was 40 something people. Oh, wow. And, you know, we had to hire a lot of those people in flight at the start of that project. So it was, it was fun building an IT organization in Greenfield and getting going. And uh, it was very rewarding. And then, you know, like I said, obviously, as a result of that, um, uh, you know, the CIO, Charlie, when he went to Imagine, called me and said, hey, I, I need a CIO. And uh, it's like when somebody's getting ready to punch that card, you kind of take that opportunity. But all, of, all that other stuff laid the, the groundwork to kind of get to that role. But, you know, I, I think it's comprised of a lot of things, right? The, even though my background was software development, being willing to take on infrastructure, oh, yeah. being willing to take on ERP, or at least portions of ERP, and then ERP at, um, at Genban, it just it kind of rounded out so you had a, a complete view of the, the IT organization uh, to be able to to lead and shepherd and handle all of it and, um, you know, not not just be in one-dimensional. And then, obviously, finance came back around because having the business background from school, all of a sudden I dug all that stuff back up again, and it just helped me make a, you know, make me a more effective manager uh, in terms of dealing with the, the mechanics of the business. Um, during that time, especially during that time at... Um, Horizon Lines, they were very vested in leadership development. So we spent a lot of time uh, on leadership principles and especially conflict management. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'd say that that event, um, they, they, they used a course called Crucial Conversations, which was uh, still in use today, actually. Um, it's one okay. of the seminal conflict management or conflict resolution um, uh, training uh, packages or training, uh, uh, training that's available. Um, we went through that very deeply, and I, I credit that learning the leadership skills I learned at Horizon, coupled with that conflict management, is probably the things that amplified my ability to have uh, better people skills. Because at the end of the day, technology is technology, and, and yeah. you know all those things are important. But it's people who are doing this technology for you and for companies. So being able to work with um, you know people all over the world, people from different cultures you know, people with different ideas and being able to bring out the best in those teams and stuff uh, was was a result of a lot of that activity at uh, at Horizon Lines during that time and, and having 10 years to, to hone leadership skills in a, in a thoughtful and directed way and Horizon's investment in leadership development at the time. So it was, it was good. I look, I look back and it was, a, it was a pretty good period of time for me and my family. So it was Charlie the one who first promoted you to the CIO position? Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then you followed him twice because then after I did, when I went to, yeah, he was the CIO at ATX. And when ATX yeah. started, <laughs> I, I, he, he called me up and said, hey, time, time to move, come over here. So I, I left Imagine, went to ATX, and then he ended up leaving, uh, I guess, a year later. And yeah. I've, I've been there for going on three years now. So, oh, wow. Yeah, two and a half, almost three years. Um, new CEO, but uh, still there. Yeah. So it's uh, but it's been good. It's been good. It's, so. Oh, yeah. Once you build a good team, you just kind of yep. keep moving around. I remember yep. going to the office in uh, Frisco. You see all the old ATX swag. I thought I yeah. think it's also like some drumsticks with the logo that yeah, one of your yeah, colleagues yeah, had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. so. Anyway, that, that's like I say, if you really pivotal was the 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 recognition and the communication 
while I was at Horizon Lines with my leadership that while I was good at what I was doing, there was really no place to go. And, you know, and I remember Jeff actually helped me craft a path to director plan. Oh, really? Even though knowing I wouldn't get, a, I probably wouldn't be a director at that company for IT. Um, I still have that plan today. I've actually, right. I've actually used it with a couple of other people who have been in a similar situation yeah. and helped craft their, their role to get to a similar, similar sort of, uh, you know, similar role, you know, when they were trying to grow from a, a, a senior manager or a manager into a director type role. So anyway, so it was a pretty, pretty, pretty pivotal moment, I guess, in my, absolutely, in my, at least in my work career. Right. Well, especially, I mean, one that's, one of the things that stuck out with me the most thus far from your story is when that one overpriced contractor, when he went to the CIO's yeah. office yeah. and the CIO stuck up for you, those types yep. of moments are invaluable yep. just to have, know, know yeah. that they have your back. Yeah. 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 I, I, like I said, I, you know, I had a great relationship with Rick and, and, you know, things like that just showed his leadership. And uh, really, yeah. I mean, he set the tone for that organization at the time about how really how leadership should be done. Um, you know, and so, like I said, I feel fortunate to have been exposed to that that kind of continuous leadership development for uh, literally a decade, yeah. right? And not everybody gets that opportunity, so I'm super thankful for it. Um, but it was the, it was the right thing at the right time, and um, you know, instrumental in helping me become what I am, at least from a, a CIO standpoint now. But. Absolutely, yeah. and it sounds like I mean, you started off with the Sinclair, then you got to the IBM mainframe. As you keep seeing technology evolve, do you think we'll ever get to 100% cloud where the data center, you know, won't exist or won't be around? Or what do you, what do you think of the current trends? Or do you think, where do you think it's going from here? Man, you've got this question here that says, where, you know, where do you see (laughs) IT going? And it's like, man, that is like so, so wide open. Um, I'll probably try to narrow it down a little bit. The trends that I see right now are interesting because they're, to me, they, they start more with the people side of things, right? When I've been coaching people on, roles and what you do and where you go, the, the thing that became evident to me, especially when virtualization started coming around, right? And mm-hmm. the cloud started coming around, the, the natural recognition is that, you know, on premise in a company, you're going to have an amplification of, of end user support needs mm-hmm. in all capacities, right? Whether it's with mobile, whether it's with computers, whether it's, you know, with desktops, uh, you know, uh, kiosks, purpose-built appliances, whatever it happens to be, you know, while some people are technical, some people are not. And no matter what, you need support. All of these companies are connected to the internet or connected to a network or both. And, you know, so you've got to have really robust networking regardless of whether something is is a cloud service because ultimately you depend on that con- connectivity both in your company or if you're mobile, wh- whatever it is. So there's an amplification of the need for networking. Um, on, you know, on the application side of the world, there's certainly a, an amplification of the need for software development and software architecture and how those things run either on, you know, cloud infrastructure, you know, or on-prem. But with the bias these days, it seemed like being for cloud infrastructure, it really deprecates the middle piece, which is servers. So, you know, and so to me, the area that's really impacted is the people who are wanting to work for a corporation or a company but wanting to do something that's server or storage or kind of that middle tier based, the, that opportunity to me seems like it's migrating more toward data center type work. So if you really love that type of work, you've either got to find companies that still have legacy environments in that area or have very specialized needs that require them to have that on-prem 
mm -hmm. or have their own data center, um, or you're going to end up working for data centers in that area, right? Yep. So it, it like I said, so it seems like there's a concentration to me on end user support, networking, and then of course security lays over the top of that, no matter where you are, right? But you know, a, a deprecation of the of the server side of the world, unless you're, you know, unless you're unless you're working for data center type companies where yeah. you get to do that at scale, which would be certainly interesting, but it's just, oh, yeah. you know, fewer data centers, fewer opportunities, fewer, fewer roles are, are needed in that capacity. Um, so I, I think that's one thing, right? You, you're seeing, you're seeing a change in the personnel and the, the people that are needed at traditional companies. Hmm. Um, I, I think with regard to security, probably the thing that's been on my mind the most is there are so many security issues in the world today and not near enough people from a talent standpoint to deal with it. So I think AI has got to advance to the point where it's really embedded in things at a hardware level hmm. in order to deal with things that there's literally just not enough humans to go around to deal with the instantaneous need to apply rules when a security event occurs, but do it in a thoughtful way that doesn't completely shut down your business or your ability to conduct business but still contains threats and still manages things. And, and certainly, I mean, you know, I, I, I work for, a, you know, a company that right now is 165 people hmm. and IT is relatively small. Um, we are already, even at that level, swimming in data that we can't get to fast enough to look at results. So you've got to have intelligence behind there to analyze that data and be, you know, and make intelligent decisions on your behalf in order to get things you know done or mitigated when something bad happens which is inevitable in most organizations right i mean it, it's not a it's not a question of if something's going it, to it's when and what and and what's the scale of it um, and how do you deal with it so i, I think there's got to be a lot of work on the ai side of the world to deal with security um you know as you, as you know we've talked about all sorts of other things and you know uh, offline and you know the connected car business and, yeah. and all sorts of other crazy things, right? Where technology is just going, going crazy. Um, but you know, if, if you concentrate on it itself, it's, it's definitely a bias on being comfortable running in the cloud, dealing with security aspects of it, having the networks that allow, you know, everybody, everybody's in the work from home mode right now. I, I really am. I work from anywhere or work from any time. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some people that are trying to do a, a lot of, a lot of work on on their work-life balance and things like that and mm. some people work great in that mode where you're able to compartmentalize and i, I work eight to five or nine to six or yeah. nine to five or whatever and then then i'm not working there's other people that and like me i, I don't work like that my mm. my brain is I, I i i integrate so it's more like work-life integration for me mm -hmm. and some of that's a necessity of it you know it doesn't stop things are yeah. around the clock so you've got to put up with the fact that things Servers don't always die during the middle of the day. Network yeah. switches don't always fail during business hours and I mean, whatnot, no. right? <laughs> Despite what your what your stated business hours are. So, you know, for me, most of my career, it's been more like setting things up in such a way that you can work from anywhere, anytime. Hmm. But if you've got to do something during the middle of the day that's personal, great. You do something during the middle of the day that's personal and, you know, you, you get it done. Doctor appointment, car appointment, whatever. Yep. But, you know, if it means you're working it six or seven o'clock at night or eight o'clock at night or whatever, then sometimes you're working at eight o'clock at, at, at night. Um, it's certainly you have to have family time in there. You've got to protect. Right. And I know yeah. when my kids were young, we, my wife and I, you know, pretty much from let's call it six o'clock to nine o'clock, six o'clock to 10 o'clock. Mm. I, I kind of turned work off. Yeah. Um, but it was not uncommon after that to go back and deal with things in the evening from, you know, 
10 to midnight, 11 to 1, or, or whatever, to get things done that you just have to do it in, in an IT shop when people aren't on systems or when yeah. it's convenient to do, you know, to do things off hours from the, the core business or whatever. So, you know, most of my work has been more from a, a work-life integration standpoint rather than a, a work-life segregation standpoint, right? And, but everybody's different. Some people, have, you know, like I said, some people have to work in oh, yeah. one style versus another. So it's, it's funny. Most of it is, I mean, with my business, and it's usually the busiest time is usually the weekends, not only researching new technologies, but like yep. doing installs and updates. Yeah. You sure as heck aren't wanting to risk disrupting the business yeah, during, during regular business hours. Yeah. So yeah. IT kind of seems inherently to be, you know, at off hours, yep. so to say. Yeah, and, and yeah, it depends on the business, right? Some businesses are super weekend driven and they've got a couple of days oh, yeah. during the middle of the week that, that you know, that there is their slack time. So, you know, if you're going to be in the IT field, it really just it requires you to kind of work in whatever mode you're, you know, the company that you're working for, that you're helping, you know, how how they work. But, I, you know, where do you see IT going? I, you know, again, not on the technology side right now, but the, the biggest thing that we're dealing with right now is this notion of, look, we're coming out of pandemic and all this, you know, people have had a recognition that time and other things are, are maybe more important than they were before and, uh, or their, you know, people's attitudes toward, toward that are changing. So it, it's really for IT is how do you rationalize the, I hate the term, the, the new normal, but how do you rationalize yeah. where we are right it is now? Yeah. And, and the fact that you've got some people who, who want this work-life segregation, you've got some people who don't mind the work-life continuity or the work-life integration, and how do you build effective teams with those different needs from an employee standpoint to still get done what you need to get done? Because at the end of the day, it's it's still projects, work, maintenance, yep. you know, fixes, incidents, what whatever that you've got to do to to move a business forward for what you're doing. And it's really how do you craft those teams to to leverage those various desires and those various things that 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 make employees tick, mm. but also you know, no employee exists for the sake of being an employee, right? I mean. You're, you're trying to you're trying to get something done for yourself you're trying to get something yeah. done for an organization so how do you meet your personal goals how do you meet the the organization's goals mm -hmm. and and how do you how do you you know craft the right you know the, the, the right team structure or the right team expectations and leverage the various um, capabilities and skills and desires of all of all these different competing needs to still get done what needs to get done right and I think that's the bigger biggest challenge so it, you know from an IT standpoint it's not necessarily technical it, it's the the people side of it right now and I mean I don't do you think it'll ever go back to where there's 100% uh, traditional office capacity where you have you know headquarters downtown and everyone's commuting again I, I, I don't I, I mean I think there may be companies that are like that right and there may be companies that are like that out of necessity and there may be companies that are like that out of the desire of the people who work for that company right yeah I mean I'll, I'll give you a great example I mean not everybody works well from home yeah. Um, in, in our current company, our, our main sales guy, who's responsible for literally, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue, he does not, he's not comfortable working from home. We don't have an office here in Texas, except we have an executive suite where the, the guy literally lives like half a mile away, but he goes to this executive suite every day because that's what he needs mm -hmm. to feel effective to deliver what needs to be done for for our, you know, for the current company I work for, right? Yeah. So I, I think it's just it's just a recognition. Um, like I said, of, of where people are and what lets them function at their highest level to get yeah. done what needs to get done. So look, if you had a, you know, if you had a company where 100% of the people love being around each other and yeah. want to be in the same space and they need to be in the same space to get done what that business wants to do, 
then yeah, I think you'll see that, right? Oh yeah. But if you've got companies who are equally successful where no one is even in the same location and, yeah. and they're still getting things done, um, you know, I think that works too, right? I mean, again, I'll use the company I work for right now. CEOs based in Santa Rosa, CIOs based in Texas, head of marketing's based in Texas, head of engineering for one business line is in San Diego, CFOs in Atlanta, head of business, you know, uh, another business line is based in Ottawa. So we have a, a highly distributed management team, yet we're still we're still very close. We meet regularly, you know, albeit most of the time virtually. But we've got a very high trust level where we're working together and we're doing great things for the company that we're that we're working for right now. I mean, we've had you know great revenue growth over the last two or three years. Um, you know, it's a it, from a turnaround perspective, uh, from a private equity you know ownership standpoint, we've got a really good success on our hands right now with a highly distributed team at a management level, you know, we've got, you know, we've got two warehouses. Um, people have to be in the warehouse. You know, yeah. Maybe they don't want to be, but yeah. if they want to work in warehouse that, you know, yeah. warehouses aren't virtual. So, you know, somebody's gotta be in the ground and, and those people are doing an awesome job at what they do, but we've got a certain percentage of the company that's working from home and they'll probably never go back to working in an office again. Right. So I, I think it's, you know, I think it's just, it, it's knowing what your business needs to get done, finding the, the people that match what, what that match the style of business that you want to run mm -hmm. and to meet the business's goals and, and you're going to find that you're successful hiring to that mindset mm -hmm. right so if you know like i said if you've got people who want to want to work 100 percent virtually and that's what they want to do and you've got leadership of a company that's comfortable with that and you know, wants to run a company that way, then great, go find, go find that mindset and you'll probably be better off for it than, than not. If, you know, leadership wants to run a company where it's more closely knit, then you have to go find the people who want to be in a, in a building and working mm -hmm. together to get something done. And you know what, you'll find those people as well. Cause there, there's, 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 it's not like we have one, one mind share of the way people want to work in, in the world today. Right. Absolutely. Anyway. And, and plus, I mean, you're going to see, I just can't imagine, especially from a CFO and CEO perspective, how much money they're saving right now when it's not, of course, we know it's not just the cost of the headquarters, the land or the lease. You've got the internet, you've got the AC, yep. all those costs add up. Then you've got liability insurance if something falls on yep. the headquarters or something. I mean, there's so much upside to either decreasing your headquarter footprint or eliminating it completely. Yeah. But there could be upside to having a, a, a on-prem building, right? I oh, mean, absolutely. If, you, if you've got the talent and the mind share and the business you're running needs to be on-prem, all of those things are just cost of doing business. And oh, yeah. the fact that you've elected to spend money on those things may actually enhance your business, right? Sure. And so it, it really just depends on what you're trying to get done and the style of the people who want to work together. And oh, yeah. you know, in an ideal world, every every company would would know what it wants to be and know how it wants to hire and operate and that there's a big enough talent pool that you find the people that want to work in that style. Absolutely. Right? And I, I don't know if we're there. I don't, I don't know what the, you know, the composition of all the, you know, IT employees are in the United States or in the, the world. But mm -hmm. my guess is we probably have a mismatch between the, how leadership wants to work and, you know, how, uh, how employees want to work and everybody's yeah. trying to sort out that balance right now. Right. And, oh, great. You know, there's a couple of articles past, you know, 12 months as everyone's having these conversations where the biggest, you know, misconception or the biggest polarity is the CEOs. Like they did all these polls, all the CEOs really want, you know, you know, feats and seats, whatever the saying is. Yeah. 
And then the workforce, they pulled them, and you know, over sixty percent, they want to keep working from home for a yeah. myriad of reasons. Yeah, I, I would, I would, I would wonder if that's generational, right? Oh, yeah. Chances are, I would think so. You know, partially. I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm probably on the older end of the the scale from a management standpoint. Um, you know, I, I would question whether that's true of CEOs across the spectrum. Yep. You know, down to twenty year old CEOs. Or you know, seventy-five or eighty years, eighty-year CEOs, right? Uh, it, it's it, it may be just what people are used used to and comfortable with from a leadership style, right? And um, maybe that takes care of itself over the next ten or fifteen years, as yep. you know, as one population ages out and, and CEOs come up. I, I I don't know, right? But I I would be curious about that that analysis or that statistic to know. Where there's a where there's a generational bias to that that particular situation. That's very few. That's like one of three three or four useful things I learned from college. Is we had a course on business statistics, and I met the teacher or professor was always always ask, know your sample. Yeah, what's yeah, it consistent? What's sample, because yeah. like a lot of things in life, facts are true, and polls are true, but you also vary it greatly on how you say it and then who yeah. you pull it to. Yep. So that's why I always try to take things with a grain of salt when you're looking at all, you know, all the news these days in general. <laughs> yeah, and, and honestly, look, I mean, a, a lot of CEOs, depending on, you know, depending on their background and the need for their company, a, a lot of them have to be technical. They have to be sales. They have to be people people. Yep. And if you're, a, if you're a, a, a people people person that generates activity off of being around other people mm. and you need that in order to operate effectively and you need your team, then it's probably those, you know, it's that bias that's craving being around because they, they perceive themselves as more effective when that team is together. Now, does it mean the entire company needs to be together or, you know, the core management team needs to be together? Mm. Again, I, I think that's more a, a factor of, comfort level of the people involved like i said i'm working for a company right now where the management team's highly distributed mm -hmm. but we you know we get together from time to time in person yeah. we have our trust level level that we've established being together we have, have our trust level that we've established being apart we're very good on expectations management of what we do we have all the tools at our, our disposal to 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 reach any of us anytime we we need to get a hold of one another to get something done mm -hmm. um, and we're comfortable with that and you know in our current ceo um you know he, he seems to be super comfortable in in that uh you know in that world as well if he's not he hides it really well yeah. and so. kind of a i don't know if it's still a timely topic but i know over the you know past couple of years when you and i were hanging out and talking about you know the different challenges to atx and the industry in general can you elaborate a little bit on kind of because i didn't realize how much the, ship, the shipping logistics changed, not just in cost, but also complexity when you're trying to move products around the globe. Is, yeah. I guess, can you elaborate that issue a little bit? And then is that still an issue today? Or yeah, how's, so it, it's, how's it progressing? It's definitely still an issue. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it doesn't affect me so directly, but you know, our, our company, look, we, we build products right now for the company I work for that goes literally at layer one, physical components that go in that, that move bits of light and electrons around that you know, connect the internet. Yeah. Um, so from a cable-based system and from a, an optical-based system. And, you know, for us, we used to measure lead times on, on equipment and parts in, you know, 12 and 16 weeks lead times, whatever, right? We've got suppliers right now that are quoting us lead times on basic components that are 52 weeks out, 60 weeks out. 60? Mm -hmm. 
before before that component's available. You know, for us, we've seen I think close to a forty percent increase in metal costs alone. So if really? you're building a chassis for something, right, with yeah. a box to put a gear in, and you've had a forty percent increase in in costs on that, how do you you know how do you how do you pass that on effectively to your customers um, without sticker shock? So all all this notion that we see right now with people saying, oh. We don't understand why inflation is so bad. I don't know what documents they're reading, but the documents we see from our suppliers seem to say, look, there, there's a lot of inflationary pressure in, in things. And I think the supply chain is getting itself sorted out in terms of movement. Mm. It's more now the availability. And I guess what's taken center stage now is the inflation piece of it is, is starting to get the forefront and where the supply chain issues were kind of in the, in the forefront now. It's not like they've gone away. They're, yeah. they're still there. Uh, I, I, my personal feeling is from what I see, supply chain is probably another two years, two, two three years before it, it comes back to oh, wow. what anybody would consider close to normal. Um, and when you say the metal went up by 40%, is that uh, cast aluminum? Or? Sheet, it's sheet, basically sheet metal and, and aluminum, aluminum, and yeah, it, aluminum metal. And I, I'm sure it's been everything. I mean, I, I'm, not yeah. a, I'm not a supply chain guy and I'm not a, a components guy in our, our company, but you know, listening to the, the my peers talk, I mean, it's it's individual little things, right? You know, things that go into a simple part that may cost a buck, yeah. you know, are not available, all the way to things where we use these uh, uh, FPGA, uh, I don't even know what it stands for, uh, field programmable gate array or something like yeah. that. You know, those used to be major than one thing. Some of those things have seen a 700% increase in cost. 700? Oh my God, where are they so, made? I, or I guess... Uh, the, overseas, China, Taiwan, yeah. someplace, Malaysia, someplace overseas, right? So anyway, so, I, you know, it's, it's not like you can just take that component all of a sudden and pass on a 700% cost increase on a major component of a deal to customers. So, you know. You have to redesign it or how do you overcome that? Yeah, uh, the engineers, sometimes they are re redesigning things to try to get a better better cost equation. Uh, sometimes, you know, like anything, we'll, we'll put supply chain, we'll put price increases in over time, mm -hmm. but even even after those things, um, you know, become available, you may see the the price, it, it, it may take some time for the price to come back down, even after supply chain, you know, woes and inflationary woes go away, right? So, and, you know, because, I, I mean, we're, yeah. we're buying equipment now, yeah, right, that we're not receiving until a year from now, a year? which then it doesn't get into the customer's hands until, you know, a, a year, you know, a, a half a year, four months, uh, four months after that. So at least 18 months from what we're buying right now at this high price, we've got to sustain selling that, you know, and not losing money on it yeah. through that time period. So that's at least a year and a half away, right? Oh God. So even if prices start coming back down in that time frame, you're going to have this period of time where the PO's already cut. Even if they've peaked, yeah. they're still expensive relative to what they really were. Yeah. Well, if it's two years from now for that price to get back down to, you know, what it was in in the past or even close mm -hmm. to what it was in the past, it's even still. And assuming all the supply chain stuff gets worked out, you're still 16 to 20, you know, 26 weeks out from product delivery on there. So it's really easy to see why three years from now you might just be getting back to, you know, something that closely resembles normal you know, pre 2020, right? Oh my God. Anyway, it's just, I, 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 I hope I'm wrong. I'm, I'm oh, yeah. <laughs> hoping it's faster than that, but logically you, you see that happen. You know, when, when I was at Horizon Lines, the biggest thing that plagued us was, was some, uh, fuel charges, right? Yeah. Cost of fuel. And, you know, we had in our contracts that you could increase the cost of fuel, mm -hmm. but it took 90 days to get a, a price increase into the supply line for a fuel surcharge. Really? And then, but you know, then you're buying fuel now at a more expensive 
know, or you're buying fuel contracts at a more expensive cost. Um, you know, so it took, you know, 90 days to get your price decreases once fuel started coming down. So there's always this impedance where prices have gone up and, you know, where we at the time were recognizing fuel surcharges until, you know, a whole quarter, you know, after the prices went up. Well, then customers on the back end, once prices start to come down, you know, everybody's like, well, when are your prices going to drop? When are your prices going to drop? Well, you can only drop them yeah. reflective, you know, or relative to when you're buying equipment that's going into future products. If you've already bought it and it's in inventory, it's got to get bled off. You've got to take a loss on it, margin erosion, or, you know, you've got to sell it at what you were selling it for Yeah, uh, in order to, you know, in order to make money, right? Yeah. And so it just, it, so even as people start seeing prices come down on component levels and, you know, products, you know, basic products and components that comprise, you know, gear or, or other products, let's say eight months from now, those prices start coming down. You know, you probably don't see as a consumer, you don't see some of those prices actually come down until, you know, months later when, you know, when that, when the components that went into build that inventory mm -hmm. actually get into, you know, get into the, the shelves or get into, you know, into the supply chain to be sold and consumed, right? So. And, and I almost wonder if prices will ever go down because you've also had increases of, of the cost of labor. Yeah, so yeah. It's, there'll be some of that. That's why, that's why yeah. it's careful to say, I don't think they'll go back to the way they were, yeah. but they'll go back to more near normal in terms of not being as, as high as they are. Look, when I was growing up, my mom had a, a, little, a little cartoon um, hung up on our pantry door in our kitchen. And it was a. Uh, it was. This is probably from the '70s when gas prices had gone, you know, gone through the roof, and there was a lot of inflation back then. And it was. A, it was a store owner holding a loaf of bread, and it's like, ma'am, it's simple economics. Price of wheat goes up, price of bread goes up. Price of wheat goes down, price of bread stays up. <laughs> right. So, so I, I think you're going to see some of that, right? There, there yeah. there's people who have taken losses and stuff. That they're going to be reticent. They're going to want to recoup that, you know, even yeah. if it's a, a year or two down the line. So you're probably going to see it take a while for some of these prices and stuff to come back down and, and how how dramatic or how has the shipping evolved so i remember like two or three years ago or maybe two years ago when code was first hitting you were telling me that for the first time in a long time you're actually having to uh, bid on the shipping containers because there's such few around yeah, I, I don't know if it, it, it's a bid per se it's just i, I mean you're in everybody was jockeying to get containers yeah. in the first place right and the container might have cost four grand and They've been as high as twenty grand to get a, a container shipped. You know, and it's a standard shipping container going from uh, China to yeah, the U.S. Yeah, China to the U.S. or whatever. Right? Yeah. Oh my gosh! Yeah. But again, all, all that costs. You know, companies don't just just don't absorb and eat that. Otherwise, you're laying off people, right? Yeah. So you know, if everybody wants a company to absorb that cost, that's great. Yeah. But it means you're gonna you're gonna cut costs someplace else. Well, so, and, yeah, it's also know, so either that yeah. or you pass it along. You pass some portion along to the consumer, and you know, yeah. you can only you can have only so much margin erosion because before. You know your ownership or your your company's not viable or shareholders get whatever right you're you're not going to survive as an entity if you absorb yeah. every single every single um, price increase that gets hit so somewhere along they have to get passed on to the consumer and they do it just it takes time to pass it along and then it takes time to take it out well, right? so. absolutely that's probably one of the biggest fallacies i noticed in the news being the past uh i want to say six months a lot of people were starting to blame the grocery stores saying these grocery stores are getting they're, they're massive profits. They made more profits this time than any other history. That's why inflation of your groceries is because of them. Yeah, maybe well, no, if, well, if, like, um, I forget who, but if you look at, because most of them are publicly traded. If you look at their finances, it's one of the most cutthroat industries. Like, usually the profit margin is around 2% for groceries. Mm -hmm. And the, the reason they're, they're making more money is because they increased the quantity. Their margins were about the same. So they're, 
they're just increasing the price too because their cost, you know, yeah. retail, their yeah, cost I, going I'm, up. It just kind of at the, what is the, the, um, when you throw a rock in a pond, what is that? Ripples. Thank you. Yes. The, the ripple effect. Yeah. I mean, their cost went up. So the cost of consumer went up. Yeah. Yeah. So our grocery bills appropriate or, um, went up at the same. Yeah. Well, it, it, yeah. I mean, it piles up along the whole supply chain, right? The, the labor costs, fuel costs, everything, you know, everybody who's bringing stuff to that grocery store, yeah. all those costs goes up. Uh, same thing. All those people yeah. try to pass it along. Well, who's their consumer? Their consumer's the grocery store. Okay. Yeah. So the grocery store has to pay a little bit more, whatever. I'm sure there's places out there that are gouging things. I'm sure yeah. there's companies that are taking it on the chin yeah. and absorbing and buffering their customers from, yeah. from things and, and every, every manner in between. Oh. Right? I, I'm, I'm not going to get into any conspiracy oh, yeah. <laughs> biases. Or anything. Oh, I'm sure there's people out there. Who oh, of course. That's, stuff, so. I'm pretty sure that's the majority of the internet is conspiracy <laughs> theories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's just a lot of people don't realize just like you take one factor. A lot of people think about, you know, diesel prices going skyrocketing above $5 a gallon. And a lot of people go, and eh, who cares? I either have electric car, I have hybrid, I have a gasoline powered engine. Well, predominantly most of the groceries and the products when yeah, they get off the every, train, every, everything's affected by that. Right. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize that ripple effect affects pretty much every, everything. Most products we have, I know Amazon has an electric fleet, I think with Ford and a couple of manufacturers for their deliveries. But you think about most of the groceries, with most of the clothing consumables we get, usually comes yeah. off the shipping freight, goes on to the trains, the trains go to the semi trucks, they get to the store. Yeah. And all, take, all that takes fuel, resources, labor, and it's just an ever-growing ripple effect. And yep. I mean, hopefully technology will also evolve so we can have more efficient shipping routes and technologies, maybe drones. I know, I think it's starting to become legal more and more with drone delivery. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see if they can get economies of scale or increase the size of the drone. So it could be an actual, you know, shipment of groceries to a Walmart or yeah. to a retail establishment, which would be pretty fascinating. I don't know if it's possible yet, but. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure we could probably make a whole nother topic around, uh, around speculation on, on that. I'm Oh, easily. Probably not the best person. I probably have some <laughs> ideas, but I haven't really, haven't really thought through through that. Somebody's thinking about all that stuff. So. Oh, I, I guarantee it. I mean, I know Tesla announced like two years ago the semi truck that they're going to come out with. That'll be, you know, in theory, it'll be autonomous, fast, yeah. magical. Yeah. It'll be. A I, I, I do think. I, I do think in general, when you know, you say where's IT going? I, I definitely think there's a bias toward automation. I, did, mm -hmm. I definitely think there's a bias toward autonomy. Mm. in terms of things right we talked about this before we even started we sat down for the cast you know you know all, all the things that will change as a result of having just a certain mass of of connected cars talking to one another on the road and what that means for transportation and what it means for you know the ripple effect of not having as many accidents and what that looks like i mean there's just a lot yeah. of things there you start taking that sub vertical and going three dimensions with drones or people right. carriers or whatever it is right i mean it changes the dynamics of a lot of stuff so. well, that's actually, well, we actually kind of saw that in many, we actually saw that in real time with COVID. When COVID hit, yeah. a lot of people don't realize, I think I researched it, there were, again, this is, don't quote me, but it's like every day on average, there's about 350 car accidents in Dallas, Fort Worth, you know, if you include vendor vendors, totals and all that. And if you think about all the ripple effect, you have the, you're employing the police to come up yeah. and help clean up. You're employing the insurance companies to pay out yeah, right. and also yeah. the, the lawyers to litigate. Then you have like two of the two of the largest companies in Texas are Caliber Collision. Then you have Service King. Those companies will repair the vehicles. Yeah, but if there's not many to repair, yeah, and then they have and then they have all their suppliers like 3M and all these engineering companies that makes the components and the sandpaper. Yeah, 
And those companies really hurt really bad when COVID yeah. first hit. But then, of course, you had other companies that grew exponentially, like you know, Microsoft, Zoom, and yeah. all those yeah. grew like wildfire. <laughs> yeah, so so definitely, I think, you know, jobs in IT are, um, are, are definitely going to have a bias toward the automation side. And like I said, autonomy and autonomy around transportation, you know, in particular, right? There's just going to be a lot of transformation, I think, in that over the next decade or two. Absolutely. I mean, we already, with the Teslas, you basically have this baby data center on wheels. They're just going to become yeah. more and more yeah. interconnected and more yeah. efficient and, in theory, yeah. safer and secure, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I remember, I remember you were telling me you do a lot of uh, volunteering earlier in the podcast. Can you tell me a little bit about kind of the Boy Scouts and your... Yeah, so I, I've worked, I'm, I'm an Eagle Scout, so I was talking about leadership earlier. I mean, some of my earliest leadership, I, I, I got out of scouting, right? And I, I you know being comfortable being up in front of people and speaking, I'm sure started there. Basic leadership principles and team dynamics, I, I'm sure I learned uh, you know, it, it, in, in scouts early on. Um, both my kids have been in scouts. Um, uh, even after my kids were, they're in their 20s now, are, are done, I've still you know, maintained being a scout master for a, a troop here I, I, in, in Plano. You know, for me, it's, just a, it's, a, it's an outlet to do leadership development mm-hmm. outside of work with youth. Yeah. Um, and you know, help shape the next generation of, of kids that are coming. Uh, you know, to help run the world that they have some decent leadership skills and, and foundation, maybe ahead of when they normally would have gotten it in the, the work world, right? I mean, if you absolutely think, if you go into college, understanding basic team dynamics and you know, formation of teams and teams working through storming phases and getting to a place where they're operating and then where they're successful and understanding disruptors to that and understanding how to deal with conflict. I mean, if you can pick those skills up when you're, you know, a young teenager, um, you know, regardless whether you're a a, a male or female or whatever, I mean, it just sets you up for, to be in a better place when you go into college. And then certainly when you start in the the work world, you've already got some of those skills at least partially developed and hopefully they emerge faster once you get into university or once you get into whatever line of work you're doing or uh, a trade or business ownership or, or management and you know maybe it sets you apart so you're you're a manager a little bit earlier or a leader a little bit earlier you know probably just helps your career along so I, I do that as a result of that I also uh, I teach climbing in scouts both uh, gym climbing and rock climbing <clears throat> I teach people how to do that safely yeah. people often find it odd but um, you know, climbing on rocks and climbing on on uh, in a gym, it's 100% risk mitigation, right? Yeah. No one wants to get hurt <laughs> doing yeah. that. So, and IT, oddly, is risk mitigation, right? And yep. and change management and, and things along those lines. So they're actually more compatible than people think in terms of, of managing risk. Um, and then, as you know, you know, we go trap shooting from time to time. So, yeah. you know, shotgun shooting is a passion of one of my one of my sons and the scouts and you do that with the scouts too we, we do yeah, yeah li- limited degree although it's really interesting in the in the scouting context um we see fewer and fewer kids interested you know in time over um uh interested in shooting related activities right i mean it, it's been pretty a really? pretty big change in the last 10 years um I, I think it reflects the demographics it reflects the the current cultural you know bias and things like that i mean don't get me yeah. wrong there's there's still kids who love to go you know, learn how to target practice and yeah. develop a skill. And, you know, certainly we teach how to do all those things safe, safely and respectfully and, mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, uh, I personally, I'm, so not, I'm not a hunter. I, do you I, think, I, so it's the parents maybe influencing the kids? Uh, possibly. Because yeah. so, yeah. uh, the same number of kids are a part of the organization. They're just not yeah, joining roughly. that particular activity. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I, see, yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. I, 
that it's kind of hilariously ironic. Like when I so when I was a kid, I did I had the privilege of being a part of the Boy Scout Cub Scouts and the Boy Scouts. Yeah. And one of the biggest motivators for me and all my friends was we always wanted to have the opportunity to shoot a gun. Yeah. And the ever first ever opportunity I had was a bolt action twenty two long rifle. Yeah. We had a like three or four days of safety classes before we ever touched the rifle. And of course it's a controlled fun environment. And I still have that little brass uh, casing in my me- memento yeah. box. Yeah. But that was a big motivator. I, I was a little disappointed. We didn't have, uh, I was from the Midwest. We didn't have a conduct conducive culture where we had a lot of opportunities like that. Even that was a little taboo, unfortunately, yeah. but like, I'm surprised. I thought trap shooting, I didn't have the opportunity growing up. I, if I was a cup scout or a boy scout. I'd love to do that so much. Yeah. Cause it, it's like, it's very similar to golf is, very yeah, it's fun. It's, it's very, yeah, it's just impossible to master, but it's so, it's yeah. so fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and like I said, I mean, so, you know, obviously we, it's fun teaching somebody that sort of, yeah. sort of skill and, you know, seeing somebody develop some competency in that area, which is, which is good. And, and like I said, how, how to be safe with it. And, and oh yeah. I, I think the other thing is too, I mean, if you look at it's, it's scouts in general, right. I mean, it's, it's demographics have changed over time. Oh, really? And, well, I mean, think about it. I mean, it, at least in the U.S., I mean, it, it was a, you know, go back 100 years or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's it's basically, you know, reflective of the composition of the, the people who make up the United States, right? And yeah. What you okay. see now is, you know, whereas, you know, we see a much higher number of, of Indian or, or Asian-based populations in scouting. And many of their parents came from different countries where, you know, gun laws and things like that were different. So they oh, yeah. have a different expectation and they, d- they have a different understanding of things. So maybe more hesitancy there. Okay. But, um, you know, again, when we're, when you're teaching a, a, a kid how to, you know, how to respectfully and properly handle a, a firearm of, of some kind, um, you, you know, you see, you see some cultures a little bit more hesitant than others to allow their their kids to do that. Some do and mm-hmm. some don't, right? So I think that's what I'm saying. We, we see, I, I we've see seen just a, a, maybe fewer kids and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe interested because it, it, maybe it's family or cultural yeah. history or bias. And I, I don't think it's any, anybody's, you know, I've never run across anybody who's, who's super anti, you know, anti-gun, or at least yeah. they've not been verbal about it. But, um, you know, Maybe they're more interested in archery or something instead, yeah. right? Another skill where you, you still still do something along those lines, and um, you know you're still developing a respect for you know some sort of thing that some people would consider a, a weapon or, yeah. or something like that, right? But you know, it is fascinating how it, even just even you know it's 2022 everywhere, but even in the United States, just geographically, there's so much cultural differences as well. Because yeah. I know like um, when we'll go trap shooting. Sometimes we'll see the you know the local high school team yep. and they have yep. that, you know where I grew up. There, there's no yeah, no yeah. no no way <laughs> you'd have that. Yep, yep, <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, so it's just, it's just you know it's just different. So anyway, but all, all those things are, are fun to me, right? Scouting, volunteering, you know, they just trying to make a difference in the lives of developing future leaders of our our country. Absolutely, you know, it's pretty rewarding, right? I mean, I still have. I mean, I still have my old. Uh, Boy Scout uniform and the red vest mm-hmm. with you got to collect all the patches. The patches. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 it's incredibly rewarding. I I learned so much in my leadership and survival skills. It was, yeah, it's yeah. probably it one of the most important organizations in my life when I think about it That's in terms cool. of the benefit I've got from it. I mean, yeah, it's invaluable. It's an invaluable institution. Yeah. There's and, a lot. They do a lot of great good things. And, and everybody holds up that you know obviously the pinnacle there is like getting your Eagle Scout or whatever. But yeah, uh, um, you know again it's still only four or five percent of the kids who who start like in Cub Scouts. 
go all the way through scouting, get their yep. Eagle Scout. But, you know, I, I'm, an, I'm an Eagle Scout, so I, I believe in, you know, kids trying to get it. It's a goal. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I think any exposure to the program, even for a couple of years, like mm-hmm. you, you get first class done, get, you know, get some of the basics done. There's still skills that you learn. There's still, it's still an early exposure to leadership mm-hmm. topics that hopefully just get you a little bit of a leg up or set you apart, mm-hmm. um, you know, earlier in your life than you might get those skills later. Right. And I, I don't know, it just maybe it accelerates that leadership development uh, a bit. Absolutely. And, um, uh, yeah, and honestly, it helps some kids figure out they don't like leadership, yeah. right? Which is just as good. I mean, one of the things we have a problem with in the in, in the world is that there's this high premium placed on you know placed on leadership. Mm. You know, a good leader knows when to follow too. Absolutely. And, you know, there should be a really high premium p- placed on people understanding. If I have to make up a word, followership, right? Yeah. And it's not that one is bad over the other. They're just different skill sets that people have and that that people can be effective at. So you know, I I think you know, helping people figure out at least early in their life, if they really, really just don't like leadership, then they know they can direct their career, direct their studies or direct whatever they want a different direction. Mm -hmm. Those kids who do like it and do gravitate toward it, they can figure out how to amplify it through that program and, you know, carry it on in other, other, you know, other activities that they do in extracurricular activities and, uh, and then into college or university or trades or work or whatever. So, um, I don't know. I just think it's important from that standpoint. Absolutely. Then, Tell me a little bit more more about the rock climbing, like because I grew up where all my experience was uh, indoor. Like I remember, yeah. you know, at my university of Iowa, we had at the time is one of the largest indoor ones uh-huh. or the tallest, and it's a lot of fun. But I know that's an entirely different breed from yeah, actual yeah. physical rock. Yeah, like, they're, they're, they're the, very different. Element. I mean, a lot of the techniques are similar, mm-hmm. um, you know, but things just feel different, right? When you're on a man-made, you know, wall that's near yeah. near vertical or, or you know or inverted a little bit, and you've got well-defined handholds to work off of, mm-hmm. even if they're small, um, it's still different than when you get on, you know, real granite. I mean, I, I've done some climbs that, you know, people call them like a friction climb. You, you look up at the rock and it's like, there's no handholds at all. And you wonder how on earth do you even climb that? Um, well, you know, it's got a, it's got somewhat of an incline to it, but really you learn to trust your shoes and it gripping literally the tiny little crystals of granite and, you know, uh, rock crystals that are in there. And your fingertips are more for stability and you're just moving up, you know, slowly on what looks like there's no handholds at all, um, you know. And every now and then you find something that, that's, that, you know, that's a little a little easier to grip and, and move to. But, um, you know, it's just it's just a very very different feel. Uh, the thing I like about both of them, though, no, no matter which one you you do more than the other, um, you know, obviously getting outside's nice, right? I mean, it's right. you know, being in a gym all the time is is good and fun or whatever. But getting out and you know doing the climb someplace or someplace new. Um, you know, gyms tend to be somewhat repetitive, even yeah. if they change the handholds often, you're still in the same facility all the time. Same, saying angles on the wall, yeah, usually. Some, similar yeah. sort of thing. So they vary the handholds up. But, you know, if you're able to go around and climb in different places, then, you know, the scenery changes, the challenges change. You know, I think the thing that's interesting about both of them, whether you're climbing, bouldering, uh, indoor or outdoor, it's, it's like, you know, it's a mental puzzle as well as a physical puzzle. So it's a unique blend of challenges for your body mm. at the same time. Um, you know, you can be on a treadmill and, yeah. okay, great. You're having a, maybe a physical challenge, but are you really, is there really much mental challenge to it, right? Some people find that boring. Some people find it exhilarating. Yeah. But, you know, if you're, if you're working out how to get up the, a, a cliff face and you're, you're climbing, 
you're dealing with the physical aspects and you're dealing with the mental aspects of, you know, trying to noodle out how you're just going to get up this, this route. Yeah. And that's different for every person. And while some of the placements of your feet and your hands might be the, the same uh, or end up being similar, it's still, it's still a challenge nonetheless to, to noodle through. And I think the other unique thing about it is we spend so much of our lives worried about the past or thinking about the future. And when you're doing something like that, you kind of have to be right now. So it puts your brain yeah. in kind of a different mental space than most of us spend our time in on a, a regular basis, especially if you're in, like me, you're in business. I mean, you know, my brain's already out, you know, a few quarters from now and always. into next year. And it's always kind of that way. And, you know, kind of doing something that's like right now, right now is, is really, a, it's just really refreshing for your brain mentally. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and then out of curiosity, do you go up and down the same way? Or the same path, or do you sometimes does it vary? Well, most most of what I do is called top rope. I, I don't do any of what's called lead climbing. So you know, once you climb a route, you get to the top of route. Mm -hmm. You know, you're attached to a rope. Somebody's just lowering you down, right? Okay. So it's not like you down climb. It's just the, they lower you down off the rope at that point. So oh, okay. So you're not really following a path down. You're just being lowered. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I okay. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. And then, sure. what are your thoughts on free climbing? Um, I'm fascinated by people. You know, by it and people who love to do it. Um, little too, again, risk mitigation, a little too much risk for me in terms of damage. So it's not an area I've ever, ever really pursued. Yeah. So, yeah. It scares the hell out of me, but it fascinates yeah. me too. Yeah. Like, yeah. Just well, <laughs> there, there's, you know, there's lead climbing where you still got a rope, right? Yeah. The, the difference is in top rope, your anchor point, your master point's always above you. So if you fall, there's always something catching you. Yep. If you're lead climbing, you're bringing the rope with you. And, you know, there's an anchor that you've set somewhere below you. Well, if it's five feet below you and you fall, you're, you know, you're falling 10 feet, right? Yeah. Uh, or, well, well, anywhere between five and however many feet you are past that anchor point, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and there's always the risk that those anchors come out. Obviously, it's really good mit risk mitigation that you've got to be setting those. Um, I just don't have a lot of experience at it. I've never had much of a desire to do that. And then you've got the totally free climbing, you know, where people don't use any rope at all and, my brain just doesn't even go there. That's so anti-risk mitigation. That yeah. <laughs> it's, one, it's not something we would ever do with young people. Yeah. Um, so it's not in it's not in my DNA. And then you know, for me personally, it's I I, I like the thought of tomorrow. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and free climbing and falling and you know dying or something like that are, are not really compatible with my my brain. So yeah. no, it's. It takes a different gene. It, it fascinates me because I'll, I'll no, listen to I, interviews where, like, oh, yeah, he, he just climbed up this mountain, and all he brought with him was a little, um, little container, chalk bag. Yeah, yeah, chalk chalk bag. bag. Chalk bag. That's it. People who do it, like I said, I'm Gosh. fascinated by it. It's not, not for me. Right? So I, I get enough enjoyment out of the top rope climbing and, like I said, the physical and mental aspects of it, and um, that, that's that's good enough for me. So. There you go. And I, I know we got to get going soon. Yep. So I'll go ahead, go ahead. Thank you, Don, so much. I appreciate it, man. Sure. Perfect. Yeah. Appreciate yeah, it. Thanks, thanks for having me on as, uh, as number one. Absolutely. We'll, <laughs> we'll have you on again soon. I appreciate it. All right. All right. Thanks again. Take care. So, thank you, everyone, for listening. Don't forget to click the subscribe button, like, and tell your friends. Stay safe, and have a good night.